Hi, this is Simon Yeo. Thank you so much for subscribing to my podcast, Simon Says. I want you to know that I appreciate every one of you out there for tuning in. Now check out today's podcast. A very good day to all of you listeners out there. Welcome to another episode of this podcast. As I recorded the last two episodes and going through the motion of research, reading, drafting our script, bouncing off ideas with the producers, yes, we do have a structure here, a bleed, an organic one in terms of creating content that we feel will be of interest to the listeners, I begin to think more deeply about the questions which we have been asking in this show every now and then. And the question is this, what is the nation that we desire? What is our hope and expectation of Malaysia, a place that many of us call home? And today, I want to share some of my thoughts and hope. Now, I have some listeners who ask me, and that's after listening to a few episodes, what is Simon Says all about? If you listen to our trailer, we did talk about discussion on governmental and political issues. But if I must give an answer, I would say that this show is a show that focuses on civic education. Now, what is civic education? It is basically a study of the theory, political, and practical aspects of citizenship. It gives meaning to a person as a citizen of a sovereign nation, which all of us listeners are. When it comes to the right to coexist peacefully with other people, the opportunity to pursue happiness and success. And of course, all the responsibilities attached to this privilege. So I guess the goal for this podcast is really to encourage the thinking and learning of the different aspects of civics education. And in the process, hopefully, we help people to be more involved in nation building. Now, some people say I can appreciate the discussions on society and on government, but I don't really enjoy talking about politics. For some, there seems to be the negativity concerning politics, and in their mind, only middle-aged and old uncles in coffee shops, you know, they like to talk about it, and often with great embellishment and exaggerations. And that may be true. Yet, we cannot truly separate the discussion on society and government from the discussion on politics. You see, politics is the means for people to get into the position, to get the mandate from people to govern a society and a nation. Some people say, let's not involve with all this governmental or political stuff. Let's just join non-governmental organizations, you know, NGO. And I know some NGOs, they, they are beneficial to the society. But my friends, NGOs do not get elected. They do not get the mandate to represent the people in terms of the governing of a nation. There is a saying in politics that we need a healthy dose of idealism and pragmatism on equal parts. We need to understand the reality of the ground and the foundation that we wish to attain. But on the other hand, we have to allow ourselves to dream, to dream of the possibility of a greater future that corresponds with our potential. With that, I want to pick up from where I left off last episode, and that is to discuss about where do we go as a nation, especially after the year of great upheaval in 2020. Now, let me just give you some context for our discussion here today. 
And let's go back to 2014 during the general election 13. And remember there was a theme and the theme is basically this. This is a final opportunity for us to change. Otherwise, this nation will reach the point of no return. In fact, I recall the very same theme was deployed in general election 14 in 2018. Now, in GE13, the opposition at that time was called Pakatan Rakyat. They were largely responsible for the clarion call that you know we need to change or else we are reaching the point of no return. And there was some truth to that. And in GE13, Pakatan Rakyat did exceedingly well and even triumphed over Barisan National in terms of popular votes and winning beat in many urban areas, but at last, they were unable to cross the finishing line to wrest control of the federal government, despite retaining a few state governments. So the disappointment among the Pakatan Rakyat supporters was palpable, and you can say the spirit of hope deferred set upon the supporters of PR and much of the nation. Then, their de facto leader, Anwar Ibrahim, was sent to prison and, you know, was being set to rule for many generations to come. And then a new coalition, Pakatan Harapan, PH, was formed. And within one election cycle, they managed to create history in 2018 by forming a new federal government. And for the first time, we changed federal government since 1963. Then in an even quicker cycle, the PH government was deposed after the sudden resignation of then Prime Minister Mahadir. And now we have a new government for almost a year already under Prime Minister Mohidin. Now we talk about the Sheraton move last week. And right now we are seeing a potential political realignment in these nations that could have a huge impact for generations to come. See, the options are the following. Do we continue as a nation? Do we continue what had begun in 2018? And that really is to create a dream with viable multi-ethnic political collisions with focus on the rule of law without the heavy racial and religious undertone that was ever so present in the Barisan National Administration. I mean, that was one option. Or... Will the voters double down on race politics? And you can say, returning to the roots of the system that has been in Malaysia, dominant in this country since 1969. Do we continue a path where people are divided constantly, polarized constantly by race and religion? And it's not just race and religion, but every manner of division. We can talk about the East and West. We can talk about education system, political views, economic views. And when you look at the trend worldwide, you know, political parties are really moving into more extreme partisan views. You know, this is just the season that we are in. Now, remember we talked about how general election in 2018, it was described as a watershed moment in Malaysia's political landscape. Now, for a very simple reason, and that is people are still willing, people still have the courage to choose something different. And it is also something they are not familiar with. They are choosing a new federal government. Actually, when I think about the argument that people are given the choice, you know, they, are, they are choosing a coalition, 
pH, a position that was essentially unfamiliar with governing a nation, I think there was a flaw argument. After all, we had already seen Pakatan Harapan running state governments in Selangor, in Penang, and other places with considerable degree of success. You know, when we talk about watershed moment, which basically means very consequential moment, what happened after those moments is actually the true test of strength and character. So it is like in sports, you know, if we look at football, for example, if you score first, it is good. But it is the manner of which the momentum can be maintained. It is also the defending and securing the lead that differentiates good and great teams. Good teams can score, but great teams can finish the game. It is about securing a win and achieve the desired objective. When I think about one of the greatest sportsmen in history, if not the greatest, Michael Jordan of Chicago Bulls, basketball superstar. You know, he was a great scorer when he was young, but then he changed from being the greatest scorer to become the greatest closer, the greatest finisher. At the end of his career, he would simply not allow his team to lose. So that is really the characteristic of what is needed after a watershed moment. You see, I personally believe that the next general election, now we're not sure when it will be called, it might be soon, you know, when the emergency is being lifted, the mandate for the federal government is until September 2023. I believe it will be the most consequential general election in our nation's short history. Simply because, we will be choosing either to continue the course that has been set in 2018 or we're going to revert to the ways of all. See, we talk about the fact that we cannot change 50 years of foundations in one election cycle. That is just not realistic. It is not possible. And, you know, we talk about how the Pakatan Harapan government was placed in such impossible positions and they were unable to fulfill many of the things demanded of them. And there are certain issues of the past that we as a nation need to deal with. As long as these fundamental issues remain unresolved, we cannot change the future. More accurately, it is like we cannot step into the future that we desire. And the reason is very simple. The traumas, the pain, the disappointment of the past will continue to create a stranglehold. It's like choking us, causing us to continue walking in endless cycles of wilderness with no solutions and resolutions. You know, I've always been fans of sci-fi shows, you know, the Star Wars, the Star Trek, Matrix. You know, you have heard me reference a few of them in the show. And of course, in recent times, the hugely successful Marvel Cinematic Universe, we just call it MCU, okay? So I think most people have seen the climatic movie of MCU, Avengers Endgame. It's a conclusion of a 10-year cinematic journey. And in that movie, there was a classic time travel concept. Of course, that concept itself was lifted from the popular series Back to the Future. You see, time travel is such an interesting concept because we begin to entertain ourselves with the questions. And the what ifs. What if we can change the past? 
Do we change the future? In fact, my favorite time travel movie is also a Marvel movie, but it is not part of MCU, okay? It is called X-Men, Days of Future Past. I'm not sure if you heard it. It's quite a popular movie. I mean, obviously not as popular as Avengers Endgame. In that movie, we saw two main characters, Professor X or Xavier and Magneto. They were from two different timelines, the future and the past. They were friends in the past, but were separated in the future because of the divergence in their views and values. So the two factions of X-Men under their respective leadership have been fighting so long, but in the future, both sides were destroyed by the Sentinels, basically robotic AI designed to seek and destroy mutants. So basically, when the movie started, they were in such position of distress and facing total annihilation. So the movie is really about how two opposing X-Men teams, they have to come together. They have to travel to the past in order to change certain things so that the bleak future can be averted. And hence the title, The Days of Future Past. You know, for me, that's just such a wonderful and inspiring title. Our past determines our future. Now, of course, we cannot physically and literally change the past. But what we can do is we can deal with the traumas. We can manage and rectify and even heal the consequences of the past so that the goals of the past no longer dominates the present and the future. So when I think about the days of future past, I begin to think of our nation's history. What portions of the past can we change? Now, not in terms of literally changing, but in terms of moving on from the trauma so that we can move into the future. See, as a Sarawak-born Malaysian, you know, I am very aware of the rise in the voice calling forth for the fair reflections, fair administration of the Malaysia Agreement 1963. We just call it MA63 here. And that was the pact to form a federation from four sovereign nations. We have Malaya, we have Singapore, we have Sarawak, we have Sabah. Those days, Sabah was called North Borneo. There was a covenant to form a new nation, a new federation for mutual benefit. And some of you may not know, but there was initially great resistance from Sabah and Sarawak to join this pact. And because simply at that time, they did not trust Malaya. And then there was Indonesia, just south of Borneo, lurking at the corner, proposing another type of collision of nations, with them being the head honcho, of course. It became such an issue, there was even an emergency, and it was called Confrontations with Indonesia, shortly after the official formation of Malaysia in 1963. You see, Indonesia basically slammed the formation of Malaysia as a new colonial platform for the British Empire to continue to influence the region, with Malaysia being a mere serf. At the time when the formation of Malaysia was being considered, so we're talking about the few years before 1963, it was a known fact in Sarawak that the then leader of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, made several visits to Sarawak to persuade the people of Sarawak that the idea of Malaysia was a very good one. Now, those of you who know Lee Kuan Yew, you know he was, of course, a very charismatic, a very persuasive 
person. He sold the idea of a multicultural Malaysia to the people in Sarawak. At that time, Sarawak had almost 35% Chinese with the rest of the majority from the different tribes and native. So, along with Singapore and Sabah, the formation of Malaysia will ensure that there is no dominance from a particular race. So, when Malaysia was formed 16th of September 1963, the basis of this new nation, this new federation, was this document we call MA63. And the spirit and substance of MA63 was supposed to be incorporated into the constitutions of Malaysia, but it did not happen. Now, if you study the constitution of Malaysia today, even though it had been amended so many times, the fundamental structure is still more like the constitution of Malaya 1957. You see, MA63 was supposed to reflect the spirit of power sharing between the four partners in the new federation. When you form a partnership, you treat each other with respect. You consider the desires and the needs of one another. You see, from the get-go, there were so many violations of MA63. We talk about allocation of resources, we talk about petroleum royalty, we talk about civil service, education, just to, to name a few. In fact, the violations of MA63 was so great that by 1976, a constitutional amendment made by the government of Tung Hosein Ont relegated Sabah and Sarawak to the status of mere statehood. So, now they are no longer sovereign nations, they are just like a state. Now, this amendment was eventually reversed by the Pakatan Harapan government in 2019 as part of its pledge to restore some of the terms in MSCC3. So, the question for us here today, why was MA63 so poorly implemented at all? And I think one of the reasons was very soon after the formation of Malaysia in September 1963, tension came about from the two more dominant partners, Malaya and Singapore, over a whole range of issues. Okay? I'm not going to go into that. In fact, the issues surrounding these two nations was very well documented. Okay? So after many rounds of discussion, Singapore eventually departed. And in fact, today when you do a proper research and you look at what people were saying, both sides say that it was an amicable, it was an agreed arrangement. So August 1965, Singapore officially left Malaysia. So it seemed like Malaya and Singapore, they were so focused on finding a resolution for, for their divorce that the fulfillment, that the applications of MA63 was totally neglected. Now, whether this was intentional or not, we cannot be sure. Now, in the Sarawak elections in June 1963, okay, we're going back a little bit to the past, just three months before the formation of Malaysia, Sarawak United People Party, okay, SUPP, in fact, SUPP was the first political party in Sarawak. They came within one seat of forming the government, but they lost to the Sarawak Alliance under the leadership of Stephen Kanloninkan, okay, so it was very close. So even though they, they were not in the government, but they were very powerful opposition. Now, SUPP had been the more vocal opposition to the formations of Malaysia, and they held on to the ideology of Sarawak for Sarawakian, which interestingly had been revived by some parties in recent time. 
I think it is fair to say, on the whole, Sarawak entered into MA63 after much persuasion, especially by Lee Kuan Yew. But fundamentally, they were cautious over its participation in this new fledging federation. On the day Singapore officially separated from Malaysia, that is 9 of August 1963, SUPP founder and chairman Ong Ki Hui, he made the following remarks in the Sarawak legislature. Now, just a reminder, remember SUPP was a dominant opposition, just one seat short from forming the government. And this is what Ong said, and I quote, We have the feeling that Malaysia will only succeed if we have a truly Malaysian Malaysia, where every Malaysian will have his rightful place under the sun. Now that Singapore is out of Malaysia, what then is the justification for its existence? End of quote. So basically, On was talking about what uh, Lee Kuan Yew had been saying, which led to the sort of argument between Malaya and Singapore. Okay? Now let me continue with the quote. After all, the London Agreement which is the basis for the formation of Malaysia, is a negotiated agreement not only between Malaya and Singapore, but a negotiated agreement between all states, that is Malaya, Singapore, Sabah and Sarawak. Have we no right to be consulted? After all, the future of all territories, which were colonial territories, must be decided by self-determination. In this case, it is arguably whether in the first place the people agree wholeheartedly to this arrangement. I would therefore urge the government to think seriously of the step which is now taken by starting what the Honourable Member has very correctly stated to be the beginning of the process of disintegration of Malaysia. So, end of quotation. So, very strong and powerful statements and that we can begin to consider. So Ont eventually tried to organize a referendum to determine whether Sarawak should stay or leave Malaysia, but his attempt failed. You know, the referendum was never took off. Now, what was the position of then Sarawak Chief Minister Stephen Kalonlinkant after the leaving of Singapore in August 1963? You know, I was very curious because I wanted to know what was the official position. Official records were very spotty, you know, we probably need to do more research and look at the archive. But it was very clear that Stephen Kalonlinkan was not on the best terms with the federal government. You know, there were disputes over native customary land and other issues. And interestingly, the next year or so, emergency will be declared in Sarawak and Stephen Kalonlinkan will be removed as chief minister. And there will be legal challenges going all the way to Privy Council, but Stephen Kalonlinkan eventually would fail to restore his position. Sarawak's political landscape would be changed forever with the introduction of the Rahman Yaqub and his protege and nephew Taib Mahmud, and they will become supreme rulers of Sarawak even until now. Now, SUPP of course continued the fight, but was eventually persuaded to join the alliance, okay, now they are called Barisan National, in the 1970s. And the last obstacle to the continual breaking of MA63 was finally removed. SUPP was with the Alliance for the last 50 years. And now they continue with the GPS block, which supported the Perikatan National Government we talked about in the last episode, which was essentially the Malay dominant political block. Now, GPS was, of course, 
consists of the old Sarawak Alliance parties, it has SUPP, and also the new political force forged by Rahman and Taib Mahmud Combo. You see, what happened was GPS and its predecessor, Barisan National Sarawak, they basically formed an informal pact, almost like a gentleman agreement. And this was with the Alliance and later Barisan National of Malaya. And the arrangement is very simple. Do not interfere with the matters in Sarawak and we will ensure Sarawak becomes the political fixed deposit for Barisan National at federal level. This arrangement had served both sides very well despite the setback in 2018. Now, it must be reminded that GPS and its predecessor, they had essentially won every state election in Sarawak since 1963. So as much as I hated to say this, this is what I have to say. The voters in Sarawak have allowed the predicament they were in today. As the saying goes, the people fully deserve the government they get. So you see, Sarawak remained hugely underdeveloped despite being the richest state by far. And it's very funny, you know, some uninitiated people, some uninformed people, especially from West Malaysia, even 10, 15 years ago. And you know, when we talked to them, they were like, some of you, are you still staying on trees and things like that? So that just shows the level of ignorance that people have. So what are the other things that happened? The rights of MA63 remained not enforced. Federal government had so much control over the affairs of the entire nation. We see the centralization of the power at the hands of Prime Minister office. And in fact, that was what led to the 1NDB scandal. Eventually, it leads to the fall of the Barisan National Coalition in 2018. Then we have the 1976 constitutional vote to change Sarawak status to state, which I already mentioned earlier. But here's an interesting fact about that amendment. Do you know that every single member of parliament, that means they are the member of parliament at federal level, but they are from Sarawak. They are Sarawakian. They all voted to reduce the status of Sarawak as an equal partner in MS63 to become just another state in Malaysia. Talking about giving away our rights. And some of those who are still alive today, you know, reporters have, I have asked them, you, you know, what, what did you do in 1976? And most of them, they claim they could not remember. So here's how I want to end today. You see, I'm using the story of Sarawak as just one example of the happenings of the past on how the happenings of the past can prevent us from stepping into the future. When Singapore left in 1965, thus breaking the covenant, and this is a covenant of MA63, Sabah and Sarawak were not consulted. And there was some indication that Sarawak was considering the same. Because remember, it was Singapore who persuaded Sarawak to join, but they were not allowed to leave. Now, very soon after emergency was declared, Stephen Kaunlun was removed and, you know, the timing was very suspicious to say the least. Then we have the introduction of Rahman and Type Combo. It changed the political landscape of Sarawak forever. Both would rule for iron fees for the next 30, 40 and 50 years. And one can argue 
the greatest manifestation of systemic corruption in Malaysia took place during their time as chief ministers of Sarawak. But that's another topic for another day. So going back to the theme about how we need to rectify the traumas of the past, what exactly do we need to consider to rectify? And really, it was the rights negotiated in MA63 but was not ultimately performed. So there was that lacking there, there was that breaking of agreement that needs to be fixed. Then we have the collusion between the political leaders in Sarawak and the alliance, the Barisan National, which deprived the people of Sarawak from getting what they were supposed to get. We look at the systemic corruption in Sarawak under GPS. That is why today, you know, sometimes if you hear the leaders of SUPP, remember in those days they were fighting for the rights of Sarawak and now they are saying we want to bring forth the spirit of Sarawak for Sarawakian, you know, they want to argue for that. I would say they have forfeited that right already because they have colluded with the enemy for the past 50 years. Now we can go on and on about the past. We can talk about all the injustice and, you know, all the events already took place and those cannot be changed. You see, we do not have the time machine like the Avengers had in Endgame. We do not have the powers made available to Professor X, to Xavier and Magneto in days of future past. And I know there are those who are very bitter about history and they insist on restitution. Now, restitution is basically compensation for breaking a contract. I think the continual blame game will not change anything. Now, we can blame the leaders of Sarawak, we can blame Malaya, but what about the voters? What level of responsibility can we attach to voters of Sarawak that includes me, who continually vote GPS in as a government and with very comfortable margin since 1963? Instead, it goes back to the questions I raised in the beginning. What is the hope and desire? What do we really want to see? Do we really hate systemic corruption? Do we really hate the racial and political and religious schemes created to divide us as a nation? I think when we can honestly answer these questions, that will be the day. That will be the day, you know, when we are going to be able to rectify the trauma of the past. That will be the days of future past. And it will be a day that will allow us to step into the future that we desire. Okay, so that's it for now. I know it has been a long show today, but I trust that, you know, at least we have stirred up just some seeds for consideration. This is going to be something that will take time to manifest, to take time for us to move into the greater future that we want. But the intention here really is to cause us to begin to think and then it will allow us to make the necessary decisions in time to come. So that's it for now. Bye-bye.